0: You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with Choose Health, and this is session forty. Welcome back to Physio Matters. I'm Jack Chew, and despite vicious April Fool's Day rumours. I uh, will be hanging around for the foreseeable. We need to do a little bit of housekeeping because we managed to fool quite a few people, uh, including <laughs> including some sort of uh, partners and long time supporters and patrons and all sorts of people that we managed to fool, which sort of backfires in a lot of ways. So here's here's uh, here's the clarification that uh, no, I won't be stepping down from Physio Matters anytime soon. Um, Physio Physio Matters team haven't done a deal to turn Physio into a Uh, virtual university where podcasts are the predominant mechanism of teaching although you know it's certainly feasible isn't it i think that's why we fooled many people um which and that that fake project hasn't been fake funded by the csp and nuffield that's also not true um our clinical lead mark reed isn't retraining to be a sport and exercise medical doctor um I can't remember what else what else we 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 lied about, but uh, there's a few things that came out in and around uh, that time which are happening though. We'll be relaunching Physio Natters. Uh that will uh, be mainly hosted on Facebook. We're gonna be doing live streams rather than edited interviews uh with all your favorite characters so you'll get visual and audio for physio natters. Uh, there's also our student focus group uh, student and early career professional focus group that you need to follow on Twitter and Facebook especially if that that fits your bill or you happen to have an interest in the development of of our up-and-coming professionals in uh, in the industry then then make sure you follow them they're creating some brilliant content and they'll be pushing some live streams also onto their channel hopefully in the foreseeable so a great group of great group of people that we're working with there that that are doing fantastic work so please do follow them Um, there is also a, a If you're interested, there's a few people, uh, only a few might I add, that seem interested in my sort of thoughts and feelings on uh, all things in the industry and and wider so anything that healthcare touches I often find myself commenting on I'm rather opinionated as many of you will know and therefore I'm going to ha- be hosting a conversation be- between myself and various friends of mine in and out of the industry on controversial topics and it's called "Chewing It Over and it's going to be the show where friends try to stay friends and so we're going to talk out um, certain certain uh, features that are often hot topics in which controversial Controversy is stoked and the premise being that if it can't if a conversation can't be edgy and controversial and still amicable between friends, then we really are screwed um so that's that's our plan and that again is on on facebook so find us on chewing it over with jack chew on facebook and that'll be going on on live streams through facebook and for the podcast purists don't worry i'll i will probably push that out to itunes when i get round to it so you can get that in the usual way that you'd get this show and others um we've got an awful lot of stuff going on um with Choose Health at the moment, Mark Reed is taking lead of a clinic that we're running now in Altrincham, Cheshire. So if you have any patients, I know we, we get a lot of listeners worldwide, but also the UK is the majority of what we see. Um, then if you have any patients that you want to refer to us, which often happens, we've got an influx of that, which is why... Choose Health's operated as a second opinion consultancy company for a number of years now where we'll go out to other people's clinics and to sports teams and facilities that, that are provided by the referrer or the patient and more and more people have wanted to come to us um, which is something that we've needed to therefore provide some space so we're starting to open a few clinics uh, across the country and uh, we've got a new one in Cheshire in Altrincham so if you have any patients in and around the region that you uh, feel you want to refer in to us and want our opinion on then please do send them over get in touch on the Choose Health website another thing that's going on we've got a couple of spaces available not a lot of people know that we do clinical mentoring and uh, the core team uh, at Physio Matters and Choose Health do clinical mentoring for clients worldwide so um, from new graduates to experienced professionals to, th- to students that we Skype on a monthly or fortnightly basis to talk over clinical topics and um, it's, sometimes it's body parts, sometimes it's concepts, sometimes it's sort of a basic evidence based or complex evidence based thinking sometimes. Um, and we've had a couple of spaces that have opened up recently, mainly because the people we've been working with for the months and years past are now absolute geniuses. So they no longer need us. They are probably, we could learn more from them now uh, than they can from us. So they've flown the nest. And in- instead, we've got some spaces opened up, so please do get in touch. Inquiries at choosehealth.co.uk if you want to email, but also you can find us in our usual social media places and if you'd rather grill us publicly. I'm already aware of the time, so um, I'll crack on, but wanted to give a quick thank you to everyone that's given feedback on the last episode. As you can imagine, incredibly personal to tell my story of... Uh, what I've been going through with my back and leg problems recently um, and so the feedback's been wonderful and I really was touched by the people reaching out and, and giving uh, their thoughts on, on not just the episode but also on how I've been getting on so thanks for that. Um, so today's episode is on ankle instability with Eamon Delahunt. I introduced him in our conversation fairly thoroughly so I won't linger too long. He's an Irish physio and researcher uh, that we got pointed in the direction of by our aforementioned brilliant student group, uh, Owen Cunliffe who uh, is one of the team there he suggested that we uh, check out his stuff and, and we were pleased when we did to find exactly the sort of guest we wanted to talk about ankles with and so uh, i hope you enjoy this conversation that i have so i bring you eamon de La hunt <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to be on the line with Eamon Delahunt, I hope I've pronounced that right, you might get an immediate correction, um, who's going to talk to us today about all things ankle instability, both acute and chronic, and delighted to have, uh, to have Eamon on the show because we've been meaning to cover ankles for a while and we've been looking around into the marketplace of ideas as we often do, to find people that are notorious for working on consensus, working in collaboration, as well as having their own hand in more specifics within that field. And uh, Eamon ticks all of those boxes for us. We're also very fortunate to be uh, leapfrogging from a BJSM podcast done with Eamon and Karim Khan very recently. So they beat us to the, the exclusive... But what it does is it gives us a 20-minute insight there that mainly on chronic ankle instability, but also covers some great ground. So we would immediately point you in the direction of that because we're not we're going to purposely not cover some of those things in detail and and get into the nitty-gritty of what wasn't in that. So we will use that as a platform to then discuss other things. So while we hope to be thorough today, I immediately direct your eyes and ears to that. And welcome, Eamon. So first things first, could you just introduce yourself to the listeners, tell a little bit of your backstory before we delve into all things ankle.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Jack. It's great to speak with you today and thanks for this opportunity and hopefully I can... uh provide some information that will be useful to the listeners. So um, regarding my background, I studied physiotherapy um, as my undergraduate degree. Came straight from what we call secondary school or or high school. So started my undergraduate degree in 1999 and finished that as a four-year honours degree in 2003. Um, And then upon graduation, I was kind of in the fortunate situation whereby I had uh, two offers. Um, I had the offer of uh, a job um, full time in a sports medicine and sports physiotherapy clinic. And I also had was in the fortunate position of being offered an academic scholarship to undertake a PhD on um, ankle joint instability. So kind of negotiated with my supervisor at the time and we came to a decision where I'd be able to work two and a half days clinically and then study um, and undertake research on the PhD the rest of the time. So finished PhD in 2006, uh, took me three years, and then after completing that, I worked full-time clinically for a year in the sports medicine and sports physiotherapy clinic that I had been working in during my PhD. Um, and then in 2007, the opportunity of a faculty position came up in UCD um, in the School of Physiotherapy and Performance Science, as it was called then, and was lucky enough to um, be appointed after an interview. Um, at that time, I continued to work clinically um, two evenings per week and um, did that up to around 2010, 2011, um, and at the moment I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Health, Physiotherapy and Sport Science in University College Dublin, and mainly have the typical academic roles of teaching, administration and research.
0: Fantastic, so uh, lovely and thorough through your career, but but always founded in in sport. Was that spe- specifically athletes of various levels, or did you see some sort of Joe Blogs off the street? Um, non-sporty customers too?
1: Yeah, so it was a a private sports medicine and sports physiotherapy clinic um, and we had contracts with a number of different athletic teams, but not specifically high-level athletes. So people playing amateur soccer, amateur tennis, you know, would have been a large proportion of the patients that we would have seen through that clinic,
0: yeah. Okay, lovely. And so Having having read as as much of your research as I can get my hands on, although uh, not all of it, of course, because you are rather rather well published, well cited. But if I was to to summarize, I think is it is it reasonable for me to say that it's mainly lower limb, certainly these days. And if I'm right, then do you mind explaining as to how that came about? Why why that interest?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so you you're correct in that observation. It's actually quite um interesting because my final year undergraduate thesis was looking at uh, shoulder muscle activation and shoulder and um, patterns of movement in people with shoulder pain but then the opportunity came up to study for a phd um on the area of ankle joint instability and i guess that kind of guided my direction in terms of concentrating on lower limb injuries. And also due to the fact of the demographic of patients that I would have seen when I was working clinically, mainly where people participating in field and court sports. Um, and what I mean by court sports would be volleyball and basketball, as opposed to badminton and tennis. So a large proportion of the injuries that I was seeing clinically were lower limb injuries. So I'd always then developed a large interest in proper rehabilitation and decisions regarding you know return to sport so that's how my interest in lower limb injuries developed and evolved really
0: and i think i mean it's only it's only wise isn't it to to cons- to be constantly nodding towards what's going on up the chain anyway um it would be strange for you to be looking at the an- ankle with any sort of blinkers on so uh that seems it seems a smart move but as i say we're gonna uh, apart from to nod towards it when it's relevant we will be talking in and around the ankle more specifically today before we get going then with with regards to the ins and outs of assessment treatment and management could you outline what you consider to be the appropriate definition of lateral ankle sprain and the subsequent instabilities that can follow
1: yeah sure absolutely so Um, In 2010, we published a paper in medicine and science and sports and exercise. And what we had done for that paper was we reviewed all the literature published to date in the area of lateral ankle sprain and chronic ankle instability. Um, We developed some what we call operational definitions regarding um, ankle instability and ankle sprain. And since then, they've been championed or... um, endorsed by the executive committee of the international ankle consortium which is kind of a collegial group of academics and clinicians who are interested in um ankle joint injuries and uh, best practice regarding treatment and rehabilitation and best practice regarding um future research initiatives so kind of the definition that we have of ankle sprain is um or in particular lateral ankle sprain is an acute traumatic injury to the lateral ligament complex of the ankle joint. And it, this typically results as a result of excessive inversion and internal rotation of, of the foot. And it typically results in some initial initial deficits of function and is associated with some level of disability. So what we mean by that is it's characterized by uh, for example, pain, decreased weight bearing, inability to, uh, to walk properly. So that's what that group has, um, championed as a definition of ankle sprain.
0: And your, um, that That particular work was cited within the consensus document that we'll make available to the listeners of course and uh, highly That's recommended right. for them uh, It was cited within that uh, as being the the the, def- the definition of choice i'm I'm completely comfortable with it. Is there any alternative definitions out there that that or any pushback that you've had in and around that definition that are worth mentioning
1: um we've had no ill response to that, or no negative response to it. Um, as you say, it's has been has been cited and it is endorsed by this collegial group, which is made up of, you know, international representatives from North America, from from Europe, and from Australia.
0: No, that, and that's great, and that makes sense. I can't imagine that it wouldn't be necessarily a particularly valid. Pushback against it—it it seems fairly sensible and straightforward. I just know that there is there are sometimes movements with regards to uh, trying to water down or, or make diagnoses or definitions more ambiguous with regards to locations of symptoms and and tissue-based diagnoses and things. So I'm glad that you've not necessarily had you've not had your work co-opted by that pushback too too readily, which is which is promising. I think at least for this conversation, it doesn't muddy the water too much um if if we can this is uh, in reading the consensus document as well as understanding this both clinically and from further reading the the importance on, of of talking about these issues and coming to a sensible sort of gold standard on this is particularly important because of the societal burden of what lateral ankle sprain then yeah. leads to. Can we talk a little bit about prevalence? And I know that there's some data presented in your work and you're aware of the statistics on this. So can we, for our listeners, outline the importance of us managing these things well and, and are certainly better than we are now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so former doc student of mine, uh, Calva Doherty, um published uh a meta-analysis and our systematic review and meta-analysis of prospective epidemiological studies looking at the incidence and prevalence of of ankle sprain that was published in Sports Medicine in 2014, um, and we found that field and court sports had the highest prevalence and incidence of lateral ankle sprains. Um, and we also found that the incidence and prevalence was higher amongst children compared to adolescents and compared to adults and also that the uh, that females had a higher incidence and prevalence compared to their male matched counterparts um, when It's quite interesting and you know this is a a point that I always try to highlight to my students in particular, um, undergraduate students and postgraduate students, is that epidemiological studies are are quite important um, and we need to be aware of the epidemiological research particularly in the fields that we are dealing with on a regular basis. So for example If you're a physio working with water polo, there's no point in being an expert in ankle joint injuries. Whereas if you're working with an amateur soccer team or an Australian rules football team or a rugby team, it would be important to be a specialist or have a real good understanding and appreciation of the injuries that are likely to be most prevalent and have the highest incidence in in that particular sport. So when we think about ankle sprains, we know in elite professional football for example from the uefa injury or champions league injury surveillance study that ankle sprains are one of the big four injuries so in terms of the epidemiology and uh, the most prevalent injury is hamstrings then followed by um, hip and groin injuries and then we know that there's kind of an equal prevalence um, of um, or adductor injuries hip and groin injuries and ankle joint injuries so, um, yeah, just to summarize, I, I guess any any field or court sport is going to have a high prevalence and high incidence of of ankle sprains. Now, obviously, some sports such as American football or lacrosse may have a higher proportion of medial ankle sprains or syndesmosis sprains compared to other sports such as soccer or, or hockey.
0: And we, from what I understand, that's part down to this: the, the alterations in the mechanism of injuries and the specifics of what's asked of an Absolutely. athlete's body in those circumstances. Yeah. So, can, just if we might, we might as well just nod there for the moment. Although we're not going to cover them in, in in vast detail, what are the the key variables in in? Well, sorry, the key differences then between the mechanisms of injuries and load demands on those particular sports that make syndesmosis injury for example let's talk high ankle sprain versus lateral ankle sprain what would be the key differences there?
1: So something that we're working on at the moment is looking at um, video analysis of different types of ankle joint injuries and typically what we see for a lateral ankle sprain commonly occurs occurs during the transition from non-weight-bearing to a weight-bearing situation, so mainly landing situation. So that may involve contact prior to landing or may not involve contact prior to landing, but kind of the key characteristic feature of the ankle sprain mechanism in that situation is a rapid inversion of the rear foot and a rapid internal rotation of the foot when someone makes contact with the ground and actually it's quite interesting that oftentimes when we look at the kinematics of these injuries they're already contacting the ground in a rear foot inverted and internally rotated position of the foot and we know that that has a substantial influence on the um, torque or moment created around the subtalar joint axis. So, you know, if they're already in an inverted position, an internally rotated position of of the foot, it increases the external inversion torque, and hence it's easier to sprain or, you know, you're at an increased risk of spraining if if that's the uh, characteristic feature of your landing mechanism. And we might talk about that a little bit later on when we go on to talk about rehabilitation and... um, things from a sensory motor con- perspective and a motor control perspective that we can utilize to try and reduce uh that positioning and uh, we'll also talk about that if we discuss bracing and taping yeah. whereas if we flip over to the in modic injuries Um, We've looked at this in Rugby Union um, and we actually have an abstract that we've submitted for the Seventh International Ankle Symposium, which is taking place in uh, University of North Carolina this coming September. And the characteristic feature we see in, in Rugby Union is that the player who sustains the injury is actually tackled by two players. So there's an inability to roll out of the tackle position. And the characteristic kinematic profile of the lower limb is that there's a fixed, externally rotated position of the foot. It tends to be valgus collapse and um, forced valgus collapse of the knee and forced dorsiflexion at the ankle joint. So typically, someone being blocked or held up from the front and then maybe tackled from the side, contact made around the, the foot or ankle, holding that ankle and foot in place valgus collapse and forced dorsiflexion and um, at the ankle joint and that's that's a characteristic feature that we've seen in quite a number of of these injuries
0: sure well no thanks for covering that because it is important for us to recognize even if if we're not in part if we're not party to the mechanism of injury either on a video replay or watching that live which of course none of us can can see all the details but to understand these things and and get the a full description which is I'm sure something we'll talk about when we talk about assessment in a second but it's a super important thing and there are there are key differences there different force variables being asked of different people in different sports um super important to cover so thanks for that now it brings us on to well, before I talk about um, some underlying disposi- predispositions that I think would be useful just because screening is always a, an important thing that needs to be, be touched on at least. But before I do, how does this prevalence and, and mechanism map onto the general population then? How does that then look with regards – because it's not just athletes. I mean, uh, right, job yeah. logs can trip over a curb and, and, and these yep. things can be problematic and we'll talk about some of the um, – difficulties that they can have that are sometimes different to an athletic population later on in the podcast but how does that how does that map onto the bigger data
1: yeah when we look at the epidemiological data of of lateral ankle sprains we see that there are it is the most prevalent musculoskeletal lower limb injury in uh, the general population and that confers a substantial health burden because, you know, there's consultation fees as a result of going to the ED, there's days lost um, to work, there's days lost through school. So basically, the, the economic burden um, is quite substantial. Um, and we do we do talk about that in our position statement. Um, we've undertaken um, a prospective study of first time ankle sprainers that presented to the emergency department that's we have a a university affiliated hospital um here in ucd and this was part of Calvert doherty's phd so we recruited people with a first ever ankle sprain and followed them up um or assess them within two weeks of injury, follow them up at six months, and followed, and then at one year post injury. And we found some inter- interesting stuff. But just to summarise, that yes, lateral ankle sprains in particular are probably are are the most Prevalent injury or lower limb musculoskeletal injury in, in the general population. So as you rightly point out, that can be someone, you know, walking a, across cobblestones, it could be someone hiking um, on or trail running, or it could be someone uh, going over on high
0: heel shoes. For sure. No, that's, uh, no, that makes sense. And and uh, we'll probably come, come to how the difficulties that they face that, that are different in a little while. But um, are there any, when, it, when I mentioned screening, for example, I mean, it's a bit of a dirty word sometimes, but are there any predisposing factors or variables that we can keep an eye out for in healthy athletes or in patients that are being discharged for or being even treated for other ailments or injuries that we might be doing? Uh, and then, if, are, the, are there any certain lookouts that we have either clinically, radiologically, just sure. certain genetic variables? I'm, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all ears. Are there, are there any sort of gems that you have in that direction at the moment?
1: I guess you know the obvious one is establishing previous history of ankle joint injury. So we know that the primary risk factor for ankle sprain is a history of ankle sprain to the ipsilateral ankle and we know that in the 12-month time frame following acute lateral ankle sprain there's around a two-fold increased risk of re-injury so establishing previous history of ankle joint injury is extremely important Um, also the issue of ankle sprain to the contralateral ankle should also be considered as we know that peripheral joint injury is likely to result in sensory motor adaptations which may increase the risk of injury to the contralateral side so for example following injury to the right ankle joint there's published evidence to support central sensory motor adaptations which manifest for example as decreased postural balance on the non-injured side so actually you know a peripheral musculoskeletal injury perhaps confers an increased risk of injury for on the contralateral side and that probably holds true of most lower limb injuries Um, in terms of you know screening one of the other things that i think is, is quite important to to utilize is Uh, specific constructs and specific questions within patient reported outcome measure scores
0: sorry to interrupt i've just got i I know what i'm like and i know i'll forget my follow-up here and i think it might be important just to linger on that point with regards to previous injury because of course an important and obvious one however there's a couple of things with regards to the, the the laterality thing that you were mentioning how much in your opinion although i know that there's a mix of both or i assume so anyway is is to do with sort of the sensory motor changes that can occur from a contralateral injury and how much is maybe then a predisposition architecturally or um the, the the nature of someone's mechanics that might predispose them to that and then it might get automatically inferred that that is to do with the contralateral side whereas it just happened that they were predisposed and then they've had another event do you see what i mean by that
1: yeah, absolutely. So if if we take a ligament, we know that it has mechanical properties and we know that it has sensory properties. So I guess from a mechanical perspective, the main function of ligaments is really to guide joint movement to the normal expected physiological range of motion at that joint. And we know that some people are hypermobile. So if you know there's a degree of hypermobility that's i guess what you are getting at in terms of sort of that's an intrinsic risk factor for the development of of injury and you know it probably won't be able to can't change that so that's sort of an anatomical consideration and who knows whether that was in situ prior to injury or not on 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 the contralateral side but we certainly know that ligaments they have sensory properties so they have projections to the gamma muscle spindle system we have been we know that there's projections to ascending pathways and hence you know overall governance of joint stability can can be influenced by injury on the contralateral side but it is an important point that you you do raise but there is an increasing body of literature um suggesting that these um ascending and descending pathways are implicated in in injury
0: right okay so yeah so so to 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 probably Overly over summarize or oversimplify a little bit is is that you you would probably lean towards it being a more top down sort of uh, regulation predisposition than than it being something structurally uh, predisposed is that a fair enough sort of probably oversimplification yeah. but yes, kind of yeah. what you mean and then a second one really is I I get a little bit torn on this because I've probably only met a couple of patients in my career that haven't had an ankle sprain before. Because so, it's just one of those things that we, we all, at least if we go far enough back, uh, especially when we say clumsy preteens, it's just almost like you're dragging your feet and you're bound to go over on your ankles at some point. So is is that not an extraneous variable that's hard to account for when, you, when you're when you screening someone and you're thinking, oh, here we go, this is a recurrent ankle sprain? Or when really they're just telling a, a story of life that most would would have you know how far back do you go and what specific details might we pass out to know about the relevance of previous injury
1: yeah it's, it's a good point and certainly in the prospective study that i mentioned earlier on um our exclusion criteria actually was that they you know could have had no history of ankle sprain our previous ankle sprain and in that situation we probably had to turn down three in four participants <laughs> yeah, so it took us two years to recruit 80 participants and wow. um, in terms of our inclusion criteria they had to be over 18 years of age as well and um, so it is quite unique to get a cohort of first time ankle sprainers. And if Absolutely. we look at some of some of the published literature, um, there isn't a lot out there on people with first ever ankle joint sprain. And I think our study was actually the first to evaluate sensory motor properties um, from a prospective Perspective in people with first ever ankle sprain. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about rehabilitation and patients presenting to us with a lateral ankle sprain, I think the, the key component to consider um, is what type of rehabilitation that they have been through, and really, does that rehabilitation reflect the range of sensory motor deficits that we are likely to encounter? and my guess would be no rehabilitation probably isn't as comprehensive as it should be so there yeah. are likely to be lingering deficits there 6 months a year 18 months 2 years following uh, last ankle sprain
0: absolutely no that's a, and that's a great point i suppose now that we've got your work to lean on if we, if we, well if we're recognizing variables that are in keeping with your descriptions in your research then we might therefore be, be in a position to say these are relevant features of a previous injury so I suppose we, as, as ever that the conversation moves forward and the guesswork gets narrowed so that's a really really good point and, and a useful one so to, to move forward then and we can probably point towards what we'd already mentioned differentiating on the mechanisms of injury which I think will be a probably an obvious place to start but if a patient presents with ankle pain let's let's narrow it slightly and say someone presents with lateral ankle pain. What is the gold standard assessment then from the top?
1: Okay, perfect. So obviously we think about you know the classic subjective and objective examination. Um, from a subjective perspective, the main things that I would be interested in would be mechanism of injury because that's going to point us in the direction of the likely structures to be injured. So for example, Um, Let's take a soccer player. There's maybe a malicious tackle. Contact is made on the inner border of the tibia, just above the medial malleolus, and the ankle joint is forced into an inverted position. That's obviously a completely different mechanism of of injury to a tennis player who's involved in a base court rally with lots of lateral movement, and during that lateral movement, turns over on the outside of the ankle so in the former situation of the soccer player obviously we would be thinking it's it's it is a contact mechanism of injury perhaps a more severe mechanism of injury and you know we'd want to think about incorporating an assessment for bony injury and we'd also want to be including in our assessment, some evaluation of the syndesmosis, as well as the integrity of the lateral ligament complex. Whereas in the tennis injury, perhaps we might be more directed towards anterior talofibular ligament or calcaneofibular ligament and may be placing less emphasis on the evaluation of the syndesmosis or bony injury in that type of situation. The other thing that I think is important to establish is the uh, severity of the injury. And in order to do that, perhaps we could use something like the FAM activities of daily living scale. So the functional or uh, foot and ankle ability measure activities of daily living subscale or the FAM sports subscale to try and determine what are the impairments that the patient is presenting with. We know that those those. Proms are, are patient reported outcome measures. We know that they're responsive and we know that they're discriminative. So we, when we're taking someone through a rehabilitation, we can determine whether they are improving in an objective manner um, and based on their subjective reporting as well and then from an objective perspective
0: oh sorry just to just to pull yeah. the brakes a little bit and just hover hover subjectively if you don't mind um although i agree what you've said is it'd be the key variables but are there any sort of telltales for let's say someone's cranked cranked over into an inversion injury and we're, and we're dealing with something lateral ankle sprain rise rather than high ankle um and are there any sort of telltales with how that would behave um with regards to Timing of swelling or, uh, let's argue, a, a diurnal pattern or um, specifics of, of weight-bearing status. So there anything else we can pass out from the literature that would give us clues? Um, I'd, I'd be hoping that the majority of our listeners would start to, uh, recognize these things from the ones that you've mentioned, but if there, are there any other clues there that could uh, tell us more about either the, the diagnostic but also the severity?
1: Uh, actually not that i'm aware of
0: <laughs> no is it is it too varied is that is that
1: yeah when when we, when we look at at the literature in terms of you know there's a, a large degree of heterogeneity so you know we haven't got any substantial literature to guide us, you know, from a subjective perspective and the correlation between subjective um, examination findings or reportings or observations and how that ties in with anatomical um, deficits or anatomical pathologies.
0: That's really interesting to hear, i suppose that what i'm um probably leaning my question towards is this notion there's a bit of a trend sometimes on in the pitch side community um of recog- the, this wise owl recognition of a pattern of bruising or a pattern of swelling or a, the 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 idea in which uh, a pseudo x ray vision can be formed by a, by a pitch side therapist um I've never been able to necessarily find any value to that either anecdotally clinically but also in the in the research does that that is that is my skepticism playing out in the in the research in your opinion
1: yeah um it would be actually and you know you know i suppose in terms of assessing the ligamentous structures around the ankle joint we know that actually delayed examination has a higher sensitivity
0: fantastic yeah well so, that that drags you brilliantly into objective then i suppose doesn't it is is that how how much should that delay then be and obviously then please do have the floor to discuss objectives as you were going to
1: yeah so i i'll just outline the the objective things that i would tend to concentrate on and then we can we can discuss each of them yeah, in a little, brilliant. more yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps um So the emphasis that I would place on our integral components of my clinical assessment would include an assessment of the mechanical laxity of of the ligaments. Then I think it's important also to consider kinematic deficits. So perhaps deficits in accessory movement at the talocrural joint or inferior tibiofibular joint tying in with the mulligan concept. I am... of hypomobility at those joints. I also think it's it's integral to assess uh, static and dynamic postural balance. I think it's also important to include some level of assessment of muscle strength. So whether that be including hip joint strength, ankle joint strength, maybe can we assess the intrinsic foot musculature because there's some data suggesting that though the intrinsic muscles in the foot undergo atrophy, atrophy following lateral ankle sprain and in persons with chronic ankle instability. And then I think it's important to assess motor control during the performance of dynamic tasks. So maybe I could just flip back there to your initial question on the mechanical laxity. So yeah, There was um, a study published by some um, authors from the Netherlands looking at the sensitivity and specificity of delayed examination for the um, anterior talofibular ligament. And what they found was that um, if the examination is delayed for four to six days, it optimizes sensitivity and specificity. What they found was that the anterior drawer test is the most sensitive test. And it has higher sensitivity than specificity, meaning that if we perform an anterior drawer test and we don't see a positive sulcus sign, we can be fairly certain that there's no complete rupture of the anterior talofibular ligament. And again, just tying back to the, what you talked about pitch side di- di- diagnosis, we know or we can probably we can presume on on the pitch if we have the mechanism of injury if we're seeing swelling patterns develop when the player is taken off if there's associated bruising we, we that can guide us generally in towards the structures that we're dealing with but in terms of making a definitive diagnosis of complete rupture we probably can't do that until you know that recommendation from the paper 4 to 6 days after after injury unless you know the there's imaging undertaken
0: Absolutely, no. That that makes a lot of sense. Now, just um, w- when you've just described the uh, the objective assessment process, I wouldn't disagree with any of it at all. I suppose just to just to try and be a bit more detailed, if we can, on that because they, they were still within broad categories, weren't they, with regards to assessing yeah. strength, assessing static and dynamic balance, uh, a, yeah. a, and you're describing a, a palpation and, and special test, shall we say, assessment more specifically. But with regards to, let's start with then resisted strength. Would that be? Reasonable to do is just a, a, an isometric resisted in different parts of range of different lower limb muscle groups or just movements, shall we say? Or is that something that would be, if we're talking about what the gold standard would be? To refer to my, pre, you know, my, my main question, mm-hmm. would that have to then involve the involvement of uh, dynamometers and the like?
1: Uh, I I believe so in terms of adding a level of objectivity to it and then using that objectivity to guide rehabilitation progress. I think it's important to always try and use um, objective measures, um, measures that are valid, reliable, discriminative and uh, responsive effectively. So I don't think that manual muscle testing without some um, instrumentation can offer those criteria.
0: Sure, yeah, it'd have to be so, like an overt weakness or or indicative of of some exactly. sort of discrepancy, wouldn't it? So yeah, that that, that makes sense. And then the te- the technology is becoming more and more affordable, isn't it? So uh, less, fewer and fewer excuses for us to 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 get hold of those three pieces of kit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like so, you know, I don't know what handheld number might might cost a thousand pounds or something like that. So you know, um probably
0: not that that prohibitive yeah well, well um, I, I, might, I I haven't looked into the market for a little while actually um, and uh, and I will, probably will do I'll, I'll, I'll do that and, and summarize this podcast with it because I think that would be useful for the listeners to know and see if there's any that we might be able to get, even get our listeners a deal on uh, so we'll, I'll, I'll look into that but um, d- just to then go on to static and dynamic balance assessment and then functional assessment completely agree of course but Do you have any particular go-to things that you'd want to test or would it be very specific to the problem that the athlete is describing or the sport that they do?
1: Yeah, so again, I, I I would use an assessment of static and dynamic postural stability. So the static postural stability evaluation that I would tend to use, and I'd also use this as part of rehabilitation process, would be something like the balance error scoring system. Right. Now we know that there are a number of different components to that. So you have, um, double leg stance, feet feet together, hands on the hips, eyes closed. Um, you know, it's twenty second trial, and there are evaluation criteria, um, to make a judgment on someone's proficiency in that position. Then they go into a uh, tandem stance again eyes closed, hands on the hips, 20-second trial. And then they progress to um, single-limb stance on the injured limb, hands on hips, eyes closed, and there's associated evaluation criteria. Then the second level of that is where there's manipulation of what we would call the environmental constraints, so bring in an unstable surface. So typically the same assessments are performed on an an airx cushion. And again, 20 seconds of um, static postural stability, eyes closed, hands on the hips, and there are evaluation criteria in terms of how many errors the the patient uh, makes during that 20-second trial. So... Again, you know, if we think about the objectification of of these measures, there are some good data there to show that it is uh, reliable, it's a valid measure of static postural stability. It can discriminate between groups so in this instance it can discriminate between people with and without chronic ankle instability or people with and without an acute ankle sprain we know that it is responsive so if someone is put through a rehabilitation process we can objectively um, see improvements on that particular test um, so that that would be my assessment of of static postural stability um, in terms of dynamic postural stability, personally, I would tend to use the star excursion balance test really because there's the most published uh, or most volume of publications around that from uh, dynamic postural stability um, perspective. Again, we know that it's valid, it's reliable, it has discriminative capacity, and it is responsive. So it can be used as um, an initial assessment criterion and it can also be used as a determinant of how someone's postural stability, dynamic postural stability is improving. And actually, um, Philip Gribble from University of Kentucky published a nice paper a few years ago, I think it was 2012 or 2014, regarding um, how to undertake Uh, an assessment using the star excursion balance test. And typically he advocates using the anterior reach direction, posterior medial reach direction and posterior lateral reach direction. And the biggest mistake that people um, make is that they actually don't normalize the patient's um, test uh, result to their leg length. So for example... I reach 60 centimeters in the anterior direction, but I'm only five foot 10. And someone else reaches 60 centimeters in the anterior reach direction, but they're six foot two. So obviously, the, the test um, result would be different in that scenario. So Absolutely, that's a common, yeah. a common yeah. situation that is
0: made. For sure. And and with regard, I mean the the star excursion balance tie, I think we'll probably come back to when we start to discuss some of the rehab and treatment variables as well. But but a particularly useful go to test because of the amount of comparable data as well uh, that's now that's now out there uh, for for helping people to understand the benchmarks that we can all strive to or or look towards both on assessment and treatment. So. Definitely, well, well worth uh, pointing people in that direction, and again, the, you know, key papers in that in that direction will be made available to the listeners um, in our Google Drive page. So,
1: just just one thing also, cool. um, actually performing the, the Star Excursion Balance Test and and the Y Balance test, okay, which, as we know, is is a commercial product based on the construct of of the SEBT, the two different tests, and they shouldn't be used interchangeably. And we have published some data suggesting that the distances that people achieve in the various reach directions and the kinematic profile during performance of uh, the similar reach directions are actually different. Right,
0: that's interesting.
1: Kind of choose one or the other and and stick with it.
0: I see because yeah, they, they often can be misused in in uh, well either either like they can be used interchangeably or sometimes they'll be they'll be used in conjunction um, mm. and and easily get confused between the two. So that's a really interesting point. And so would you would you really? recommend that people would just stick to the simplicity and accessibility of the sebt
1: well it, it doesn't doesn't cost much in terms of all it costs is a uh a few a few tapes which you can get from a haberdashery or something like that on, mm. on three tapes on the ground and yeah it's easy to use
0: yeah i think that it'd be a, it'd be a smart move but like like anything there's if there's if there's a product, and if I suppose it's not a gimmick, I think that's harsh, isn't it? But de- definitely, there's there's a, a way in which things can be commercialized. Then sometimes that can be the case, but just keeping it simple is a smart move. Yes, in that, in yes
1: it's it's just to be aware that actually when someone is performing, let's say, the anterior reach on the ground with some tapes, you get a different reach distance than you would, and an associated difference in kinematic profile. Um, compared to, you know, placing your foot on the reach indicator and sliding it forward.
0: Yeah, pushing the block. Really interesting point for sure. Um, and I think that the, the listeners will be uh, – that will have raised a few eyebrows because I think we've I've certainly made that mistake before. Um, less so recently just because I've got some uh, – <laughs> i've got that many people that are so so excited when they when they want to correct me but certainly historically i've uh i've been making those mistakes and, and taking for granted the the what what i perceive were innocuous differences were actually very meaningful so definitely yeah. well worth mentioning thanks for that the um one of, one of the things i wanted to just come back to which takes us to the the question of imaging is is palpation within that objective assessment Um, and I mentioned before that we could nod towards your um, BJSM podcast with Karim Khan that was out recently that talked more in detail about the Ottawa ankle rules Uh, but could you just briefly explain a little bit about what they mean for a palpation assessment and how that might indicate imaging at least for x-ray and then we'll talk slightly more about about MR and when that might be indicated
1: Sure, Um, so we know that there are, four, there are four bony palpations and then kind of one what we functional test. So the bony palpations that we need to be aware of or be able to uh, utilize in a clinical perspective would be be able to find the distal posterior six centimeters of the lateral malleolus, distal posterior six centimeters of the medial malleolus, be able to palpate the base of the fifth metatarsal, and then be able to palpate the navicular bone. And then in terms of the functional tests that we're uh, thinking of, or that are advocated in in the auto-ankle rules, is assessing whether the the weight-bearing status of the patient on presentation to you. So let's take, for example, the situation whereby We palpate the four bony points and none of them recreate the patient's known pain or the pain that the patient is complaining of. And the patient can wait bare for more than four steps upon presentation to you. In that situation, we know that there's a high or it's very, very unlikely, less than 1% chance that the patient will have um, a fracture of of the ankle
0: or, or the foot. Fantastic. So, and then, and then th- th- that obviously explained and some of the numbers in and around that and likelihood ratios are explained in that podcast yeah, so, you did with Karim.
1: So, that's right. So we know that around 10% of people who go over on their ankle joint will, will fracture. And we know that the Ottawa ankle rules have greater sensitivity than specificity. So they're better at ruling out the presence of ankle joint fracture than ruling it in. Um so, when we combine that ten percent or what we call a pretest probability with the negative likelihood ratio derived from the sensitivity and specificity, we get a less than one percent chance of ankle joint fracture if you know there's no pain on bony palpation and the patient can wait there for more than four steps. That's really the clinical utility of of those rules.
0: Do we have any evidence to suggest that? This is being well implemented in A and E departments across, let's say, Britain and Ireland or the Western world. Do we know whether that's the case? Because I've, I've got this—I've got this sneaking suspicion in minor injury units and in A and E departments that if someone's if someone's still not going to go away without an X ray, they'll still have an X ray. I've got, and I don't know if that's just my uh, skeptical eye, but that's my suspicion.
1: I can probably—I can only really talk about the study that we were involved with in in the emergency department um, prospective study that I talked about earlier on. Um, and I know that they were being implemented there.
0: Sure. I'm, yeah, I'm but we don't we don't have sure. any broader information about what's being done elsewhere and whether the Ottawa rules are, are being yeah, used properly. Like
1: that that type of, of audit hasn't been published to to my knowledge but um, cool. I, I, certainly, I certainly know when it comes to treatment that the treatment that has been administered or the advice that has been given sort of kind of positions it as it's just an ankle sprain, it's fine, yeah, yeah. partial weight-bearing, return to full weight-bearing as soon as possible and you will be okay. So that's certainly a, a deficit that needs to be addressed.
0: For sure. Yeah, there's a is, this is really... Frustrating, polarizing situation, isn't there? Where it's it's only a sprain gets wheeled out, but then also, if uh, if it goes too far the other way, and it's uh, there can be a, a real um, vigilance that can be created over an over protection of a joint that is sometimes inherently healthy to move on Um, so we don't want either of those so yeah as ever these conversations live in the middle ground so really really interesting point and 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 maybe we can mobilize the the listenership to try and help us with that and find out we can talk about gold standards but we also want to know how that maps onto reality so perhaps the listeners can let us know what's going on in their areas as well as potentially giving us some audit data if they do have it if they do have access to these departments it'd be really useful and we can maybe add to the add to the data that way
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: So to move, just before we move on to, to treatment, and I do want to get there because there's there's a lot to discuss. But um, are there any differential diagnoses uh, that that can either masquerade or can can linger in and around a lateral ankle sprain that we need to just be mindful of that might mean that they alter the timeframes or the rehab response or other factors that contribute to that.
1: Sure. Um. I guess just just two that jump immediately to mind um, in terms of missed diagnoses and they would be uh, syndesmosis injury and then osteochondral injury. So syndesmosis injury we've kind of touched on previously. Um, there is some good work from the University of Sydney going into the sensitivity and specificity of of clinical assessments um, compared to magnetic resonance imaging diagnosis Um, and what that group reported on was that palpation of the anterior inferior tib-fib ligament was the most sensitive test and then the squeeze test was the most specific test so if palpation of the anterior inferior tib-fib ligament which is easy to palpate between the extensor tendons, so between tibialis anterior and extensor digitorum tendons um, on the dorsum of of the foot. If that's positive, then we should combine that with the most specific test. And the most specific test that that group um, evaluated was the squeeze test. And if the two of them are, are positive, then there's a high likelihood that the anterior inferior TIB fib ligament is damaged and in that situation it would be appropriate to proceed through to you know uh, mri examination or indeed artogram in consultation with an orthopedic surgeon um and then the other thing uh, that i mentioned was osteochondral injury so any microfracture or um subchondral cyst And that tends to be um, persistent deep ankle pain um, with the presence of persistent swelling in and around the anterolateral aspect of the ankle. And that tends not to respond too well to the traditional exercise-based rehabilitation or conservative rehabilitation initially.
0: Yeah is is it that that failure to respond that gives the best indication in that direction or are there other cl- classic signs that might indicate a say taylor done osteochondral lesion for
1: example I guess just just two things and yeah certainly the the failure to respond to what we might think is is just an ankle sprain or just ligamentous involvement but then again, the description of the patient of where the pain is, and they, it's typically characterized by a deep pain within the ankle joint itself, rather than an anterolateral pain or a pain sure. that's reproduced on palpation of, let's say, the anterior talofibular ligament or the inferior aspect of the calcaneofibular ligament.
0: Something so I've re- Sorry, do go
1: on. Feature. No, no, I was just going to say that will be the, the characteristic feature
0: brilliant and and something i've just realized i forgot to ask was when we if we're suspicious of a frank rupture uh, from the from the assessment we've just done which has yep. uh, been wonderfully thorough as we mentioned gold standard but is is it then mr with a view to reconstruction as a matter of of standard with without um any particular caveat
1: i think that's going to be predicated by conversations with the patient and, you know, the level of activity of the patient um, in terms of whether we're dealing with just a member of of the public who has no substantial physical demands other than, let's say, recreational sport or whether we're dealing with a, a high level athlete who's involved in elite field or court sports because a certain proportion of people will do well just with functional rehabilitation and then supplemental external support through braces or taping
0: so not dissimilar in a sense to uh, the acl conversation correct and now i've i suppose i've um i've lent towards still scanning those individuals though because I'd rather i I'd rather know. Yeah. I, I don't know that maybe that's is that me being risk averse or is that reasonable?
1: I think it's it, it is reasonable and you know, most people when they consult with you they want a definitive diagnosis. So if we, you know, undertake our anterior drawer test and we see a positive sulcus sign and you know the whole ankle translates forward, we can be relatively certain that there's rupture of the anterior talofibular ligament in that instance. Um, where, But a lot of people w- will want confirmatory diagnosis, and in that situation, you know, you're talking about mri to physically say here's here's the radiological report we can see that there's complete rupture of the anterior tail of fibular ligament and that totally ties with my um clinical assessment
0: sure and i think as well part of my reasoning uh, but and I'd, I'd map this onto the acl as well is that i'm sometimes just seeing is that is there any other sort of collateral damage not collateral in the, the ligamentous sure. sense but the, yeah, yeah. any other issues there that might so, be
1: or problems or yeah
0: exactly and also just because then you, you don't want to end up in this situation where you're giving the hard sell we think you've got a full rupture here we're going to try conservative management and then when they start not responding they they sort of perceive that oh does that mean i therefore need major reconstructive surgery when it could well be that there may be a very straightforward arthroscopy to t- to help that on its way and we would yeah. have known that from the off and so that that tends to lean i do lean that way and do find myself getting some imaging for those so yeah
1: uh, and you know things like you know uh, uh, an associated peroneal tenosynovitis might show up or something like that as well.
0: Exactly. I was just going to mention the the perinei and also the the neural structures particularly laterally. They, they they can am I right in thinking they can they can make the process steadier but still it wouldn't radically change the rehab process if you say had um issues with the the uh, uh, say synovitis not a synovitis sorry a uh, peroneon issue at the perinei or um irritation of the perineal nerve from or, or some as long as it wasn't a full palsy or or it wasn't really sure. altering the uh the actual function of that nerve but a stinger so to speak
1: yeah i think you know your 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 rehabilitation process is not going to be drastically altered by by those two situations
0: yeah just sometimes slows the slows it down can make it a little bit more sensitive can't it but lovely let's let's move forward then to to treatment and there's um the, the, there's, there's two sides to it, really. There's the I'm interested in the immediate sense. Then, so when we've cl- once we've cleared for fractures, uh, what's the best practice care in the first few weeks post ankle sprain with regards to say swelling management, to tape or not to tape, to brace not to brace? How would you, how would it be best managed in say the first couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, so just um, going back to some of the literature that's out there, um, we've recently just published. Uh, syst- or a meta-analysis of systematic reviews in this area, looking at treatment and prevention of acute and recurrent ankle sprain, that was published in BJSM um, in January. And the main recommendations or findings of that systematic review is that there's strong evidence for NSAIDs and early mobilisation for them for. Um, Pain, swelling, and function following acute ankle joint injury. Um, and there's moderate evidence supporting exercise and manual therapy techniques for improving outcomes for pain, swelling, and function. And then, if the primary objective is to prevent recurrent injury or the development of chronic ankle instability, there's strong evidence for exercise therapy and bracing. So maybe we just talk about the, the swelling issue for for a minute. Um, you know, typically we would think about the application of rest, ice, compression, elevation. And I know that that's been adopted now to police, which is um, protection, optimal loading, ice compression, and elevation. So there's been relatively few studies evaluating um, mechanisms of controlling swelling, and you know, it, typically from physio school or you know, as as an adolescent and you injured, you you'd ice the area. Um, and one of the studies that has been published about ten years ago by by Chris Bleakley um, and colleagues evaluated. Two different cryotherapy or icing protocols for acute ankle sprains. Um, it was a randomised controlled trial. It was two two groups. One group um, randomised to standard ice application, and the other group um, had an intermittent ice application. So for the standard application, um, it was twenty minutes of continuous ice treatment performed every two hours for seventy two hours or three days following acute injury and then the intermittent group applied ice for 10 minutes, ice pack was removed for 10 minutes, um, and then a further 10 minutes of ice application. So in total, in both situations, ice application was 20 minutes. The the intermittent protocol was 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, 10 minutes on. And they looked at um, primary outcomes of pain, function, and swelling. And the only difference that they noticed between the two groups was in terms of a favorable outcome for function in the first week after injury for the intermittent group and after that there was no differences in function pain or swelling over the course of a four to six week follow-up so there isn't any substantial evidence to support the use of um cryotherapy applications other than an initial perhaps analgesic effect
0: yeah and and a lot of the mechanistic research has suggested some of the age-old thoughts with regards to vasoconstriction and the like have been somewhat debunked is that reasonable to say i would agree yeah absolutely yeah And, and so in in that sense, one of the one of the times where ankles have come up on the Physio Matters podcast is about uh, about twelve months ago or so um, was um, with Professor Sally Lamb with regards to what does optimal loading mean? Should we cast them um, for uh, a, a few days? Uh, should we? Does optimal load mean to to what, what weight bearing can be tolerated? What's your position on that then?
1: Yeah, so I think an initial period of protecting the ligament is important. Um, and again, when we look at, at the literature, we see that there are better outcomes um, with initial support in terms of external bracing or external taping when compared to cast immobilization for a period of days. So effectively what we're doing is we're we're protecting the ligament, we're allowing a certain amount of loading through the ligament, then that can be supplemented with functional rehabilitation, and that has been shown to produce better outcomes than a period of of cast immobilization. So that kind of links with this police principle of protection, optimal loading, compression and elevation so, so that would be a basic,
0: image- a basic rigid zinc oxide taping would it is, it, is that
1: yeah or uh, you know a, a sem- semi rigid external support
0: I see yeah. okay because I forget the trials acronym but you'll be aware of the one that I'm, I'm meaning with regards to the measuring varying the it was cast tube grip fancy brace that I forget the uh, the trials acronym but um, that, that came up with cast was on top of that particularly on a cost analysis but you're, you're suggesting that that uh, taping or uh, or basic splinting has then outperformed a cast yeah, well, since then
1: yes yeah so cast cast immobilization where you know there's non-weight bearing for a period of days is suboptimal to support or external support in the term of, in terms of of say uh, semi-rigid brace or or walker boot yeah
0: well that certainly supports my bias and um, my bias was clear to clear as day when we were interviewing sally about that because there is a some serious impracticality of, of uh, having a cast on and can't drive in it and things like that. Yeah. So it's certainly, I like, I like, I like the noises you're making there, Raymond. But that's that's me and my bias. So, so that that sort of covers that initial stages. Then we've got a, de- a degree of protection, optimal load, ice if you need the analgesia, but don't pretend that it's uh, squeezing the swelling out of there like we used to. Um, right. a- appropriate analgesia, I assume you would you would advise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't be adver- adverse to you know administration of. Uh, uh, pain medication. But no. then
0: you mentioned, say, manual therapies then. Would that just fall under the category in your opinion of said analgesia or whatever makes it feel pleasant? Or do you do you feel there's something more to the manual therapies at that stage than just that?
1: Yeah, so for manual therapy, you know, means different things to different people. So for example, it, it could mean massage around around the area. So we have um mechanical inputs and maybe through the pain gating mechanism you know stimulation of different afferent fibers and dampening down of through the C pain fiber system or it could include some joint mobilizations when when appropriate so i think definitely uh, both need to be considered and if we're undertaking a comprehensive evaluation following acute lateral ankle sprain from an arthrokinematic perspective from manual therapy, I think we need to think about the positioning of the talus um, and also positioning at, of, at the inferior tib-fib joint.
0: Okay, doc. right, no problem. And, and so it, that's, that's fairly well covered on the early stages then. As we progress through to a functional rehab process, and um, I think we can probably... We don't need to uh, patronize our audience in in suggesting that we're trying to scale someone from where they are at that point to where they want to get back to, and and our our gang will, will understand that. So generally speaking, we can probably press fast forward and then think, what is it particularly during that process that we're measuring and monitoring? So if we walked through step by step there, what would it mean? Um, to, to the key variables that we're keeping an eye on is that swelling is it is it power is it is it say the star balance for example and, and is pain a fair metric to guide when someone's ready for each of those sort of next steps
1: i think it is yeah um absolutely so if we institute something in terms of the rehabilitation pathway and someone has an adverse effect and that's quantified through a vas or a numeric pain rating scale well obviously that's you know not appropriate for the patient to be doing at that stage um in terms of what we should be monitoring again i'd be a big proponent of allowing the subjective and objective findings on clinical assessment really to guide the rehabilitation pathway and you know a big emphasis for me would be that it's important to utilize, again, objective, valid, reliable, discriminative and responsive clinical assessments. So we allow those to help guide the patient's progress. And they also create patient buy-in and they allow you to develop a good relationship with your patient. Because if you assess them using the STAR excursion balance test, for example, and their anterior reach or the posterior lateral reach increases from, let's say, week one to week two or week two to week three. Well, you know that probably gives the patient some faith in terms of your your therapeutic intervention.
0: Mm. No, that 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 certainly uh, that certainly makes sense. Now, when when we're scaling people through the process of, of lo- reloading and, and exposing them to more variety. I'll admit that I I wonder if I'm a little bit traditional on this, where I do stay fairly sagittal in the early stages, keep it simple, make sure that we've got a good balance of range of movement returned, um, improve strength and capacity and confidence in in simple tasks first. Am I being a bit over conservative there, or is there still a fair, reasonable rationale for that?
1: Um, I think it's fair enough. Um, I'm from our observations, certainly with the cohort that we had of those first-time ankle sprainers, you know, we found a lot of them still six months, a year after injury, um, had difficulty performing a single task eyes closed.
0: Mm.
1: So, um, so I think oftentimes there is this um, pressure to expediate someone through rehabilitation, um, and you know start to be more dynamic um but one of the things that that i tend to utilize is kind of the dynamic systems theory approach to sensory motor control and that kind of looks at things from the organism the task and the environment so if we think about the organism and we know that the organismic constraint in this situation is injury to the anterior talofibular ligament. Well, in terms of our rehabilitation, what we can do is we can stress the sensory motor system by changing the task and also changing the environmental constraints. So an example of, of that would be um, someone progress someone starts off with tandem limb stance eyes open Um, we're happy on our balance error scoring system that they meet the requirements of progression so we then progress them to um, tandem stance, hands on the hips, eyes closed, and we find that they, they don't tolerate that. Well, obviously, with them we need to place an emphasis on that particular construct before we would then manipulate the environmental constraints. So the environmental constraint in that situation might be where we add in an unstable surface. And that's how I'm kind of getting at previously using objective measures to manipulate the demands on the sensory motor system whereby we can change the task constraint or we can change the environmental constraint and i think that's hugely important regarding um decisions of returning a person to you know training modified training or full participation in sport. okay and
0: with regards to the uneven surface discussion um there is if i just dichotomize it a little bit more than than is the case and say that there's there's a school of thought that that just thinks that bosu balls and wobble cushions are the thing that's going to cure cancer and then you've got the another another side of things that just sees it as being nothing but a gimmick and has no value because it's not got any real relevance I, I, I found myself thinking that if someone's going to be exposing themselves to a variety of different surfaces, particularly your field sport people that will have um, a more inconsistent surface underneath them than, say, someone on a volleyball court, is, is, it, is it of vital importance that we expose people to different surfaces regardless of what the functional task that they're getting back to is? Um, or, or so, so, what, so where's your position on that, on that spectrum?
1: personally i think it is Um, the reason for that is what we tend to see um following acute ankle sprain is a decreased ability of the person to explore their base of support so what we tend to see is a freezing up of ankle strategy of postural control and a shift towards a less efficient hip dominant strategy of postural control so if we think about using unstable surfaces, whether that be an airx or Bosu, and you, you know, actually video what's going on around the ankle, we can see that it, those types of tasks are actually demanding that the patients explore their base of support. And they're quite demanding in terms of ankle strategy of postural control. And I think that's a key link in unfreezing that locked ankle strategy
0: okay so without without that unstable base they might get into a habit of the cheating strategies that we sometimes see locking through the ankle and using hip dominant strategies to to alter their their center of mass is that is that what you mean
1: absolutely and yeah. yeah okay that's a that,
0: and that's a i think that's a uh, that's a really smart position i think that's that's, that's sensibly balanced um i think that uh, yeah, excuse the pun on that one um but i think what, what i'd what I'd wonder is when it comes to timing for when to move people through these stages, and one of those stages, of course, being returned to play, we know that these deficits can linger. Yeah. And so we end up with this really awkward threshold where we know that people are naturally going to have a predisposition, partly because of just having had the injury itself. Then we yeah. know that they've got a predisposition to a contralateral injury for the reasons we mentioned at the start of the podcast. Then we're sending them back into play with deficits we know take a long time to settle. We're exposing them to um, to to not just harm, but also to then uh, immersing themselves back into team sport that involves them training more than just their rehab. All of a sudden, because they're getting back into normal play, how do we have a responsibility to be more conservative than we we tend to be in in, in ankles rather than other body parts? Should we be being more smart with uh, with that?
1: I don't. I think one of one of the problems is that maybe people aren't being comprehensive in terms of their treatment strategies that that they are utilising. So I think one of the issues that we see is that there's a, a range of sensory motor deficits. So if we take the classical Hertel model, so J Hurtle in two thousand and two published a model of chronic ankle instability where he outlines some mechanical insufficiencies and sensory motor insufficiencies um, and from the mechanical perspective he talks about um, ligament pathological laxity He talks about kinematic deficits synovial changes um, and degenerative changes within within the joint so if we want to you know, rehabilitate the ankle from a mechanical perspective. They're the things that we need to consider in terms of our, our treatment paradigm and our treatment approach. Then we go on to functional insufficiencies. So there's perhaps changes in strength, changes in postural control, changes in proprioception. So the ability of the the joint to sense its position in space, the ability of the joint to sense force and also neuromuscular deficits so until we start to inter- interact with that full paradigm i th- i see that as as a big problem
0: now i'm w- i'm with you there I-, I can't disagree with that but whilst even when someone is perfectly thorough and let's imagine this is a patient that uh, that you've been you've been uh, had an eye on and so we know that this, there's no long lack of thoroughness. There's also just a, a natural bandwidth problem that exists within a human where you, even if someone's thorough, there's still a time that needs to pass for things for the chips to get into line, shall we say. And so even when, even let's say that it has been thorough, do we need to be mindful of the, the amount of time that's passed? And could you give the listeners any sort of inkling as to Although I know it will be on a case-by-case basis, but what would be a typically too-rushed a uh, return to play, uh, in your opinion?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, there's actually an, an interesting article published in Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport by um, Jennifer Mac- Medina McKean, and it looked at return to play times following... Um, Initial ankle sprain and recurrent ankle sprain in collegiate sports or high school sports in the states, and the return median return to play time was seven days, Mm. Um, and that was for all ankle sprains. And I think certainly that would be uh, too quick. Um, You know, if we think about the knee and ACL typically people won't return for nine or 12 months. And there's even some discussion in the literature around whether people should should not be returning to play until two years after, after uh, injury. With, with the ankle, I think one of the most important things to do in terms of our rehabilitation requirements and our decision process regarding return to sport or return to play is that we need to thoroughly understand the physical requirements of the sports and indeed this position specificity that and use those as an integral guide regarding our return to play decisions. And I think this is where sports science can make a big contribution to rehabilitation. You know, from GPS-derived locomotion variables can provide us with information regarding total running distance high speed running distance and these can be used as an integral part of rehabilitation programs and return to play readiness decisions so until a person you know can meet the physical requirements necessary for their sport i don't feel that it's appropriate for them to return to play okay
0: yeah i, th- I know it, it was a uh an awkward question in in lots of ways because of the individual case by case basis that we should assess these things but i just think the the world's in a rush as it is and particularly the sporting world the pressures that exist and the culture of it just being a sprain it's only a sprain oh great it's not fractured i'll be back next week Is such a hard ship to turn around isn't it so i uh i do i do worry that we might be in this perpetual rush for a while longer. But let's let's hope not. If we talk about then a successful recovery um, and someone is back in their, let's say they're, they're back pain-free, they've not assumed any chronic instability, how would, say, a team sport player that needs to require regular cutting and agility work manage the issue long-term following a full recovery so they've had a couple of episodes within a season within a couple of seasons but then they fully recovered now as best we can even on the objective variables that we've been measuring should they be doing certain amounts of uh, specific work or is is functional exposure to their tasks and sports enough
1: yeah okay um i think it it's integral to continue to continue or to continually stimulate the sensory motor system um, so following return to play or return to sport um in most instances we know rehabilitation stops and i think that is problematic um and personally I would advocate or I would be a proponent of continuing rehabilitation exercises even after return to play and after sport with the primary objective of trying to reduce the risk of re-injury. So we know from other areas of, of the body, whether it be knee joint injuries or hamstring injuries, that, you know, continual exposure to stimulation of the sensory motor system will reduce our risk of of re-injury so i think the same applies for the ankle so for example supplemental work once or twice per week in terms of strength work landing mechanics postural control should be sufficient
0: do you think do you think that, that in team sports where they're doing plenty of cutting drills anyway or potentially small box passing drills say in soccer would that would, would that be sufficient to then you'd need less specific work because you're getting that element within your training compared to someone that's uh that's say uh, not got that atmosphere around them even in volleyball those drills aren't as as common for example
1: there's there's very little literature out there regarding using agility work and and cutting as as a primary component of rehabilitation programs. And we don't know whether regular exposure to that type of training actually reduces the risk of re-injury. Certainly what what we do know from the studies that have been published, two of the key central components that are integral to programs that have been shown to be efficacious for the reduction of recurrent injuries are postural control and our postural balance work and strength training so regarding uh, cutting an, an agility work i can't be certain on that
0: so as far as I'm aware that, that that brings brings to a close my questions have you anything else that you'd like to point our listeners to or uh, can you be found elsewhere across uh, across social media for example
1: yeah I'm happy for people to follow me uh, on Twitter if they if they do so like it's at and Elephant, um, and I'd be more than happy to uh, interact with any of the listeners um, and if anybody has any specific questions they can email me it's eamon.delhunt.ucd.ie and I'd be delighted to um, open up the conversation.
0: Fantastic. And what we're trying to do, particularly if we get episodes that that kick up a load of... uh questions and, and comments on social media as we might start to engage some of our, our guests, both recent and past, into some Q&As uh, either on live streams or on or on Twitter. So keep an eye out for that and perhaps we'll have uh, Eamon back on the show sometime soon, maybe across on Facebook Live. So thank you once again for your time. It's been an in incredibly informative chat and I'm sure the listeners have got an awful lot from it. And we'll, any, any of the key papers we've discussed today we'll make available to our listeners through the Google Drive page, particularly our patrons who support us and keep this ticking over so thank you so much and uh, all the best for the future. Thanks Jack So there we have session 40. Massive thanks of course to Eamon and uh, especially for his time as ever uh, we really appreciate it and feel like we covered some brilliant ground there uh, I always think it's a quite a messy messy swamp really to, um, to wade through between the Neglect that comes from suggesting it's only a sprain, but also then the overprotectiveness that comes from, especially in sport, you see people that have uh, habitually strapped their ankle, um, or have someone strap their ankle, um, for the majority of their playing careers, and and I, I just think that this this such an important middle ground to find there. Uh, that I hope we talk through sensibly. If you feel there's any gaps or you feel there's anything you'd like clarifying, then of course find us on social media. But also if you think that there's something that we could probably just, uh, there's questions that got un- got unanswered and, and I probably uh, could have asked or delved a little deeper then, please let us know and we can try and get, uh, see if we can, Eamon can spare us another five minutes and we can just jump onto our live streams. That's the sort of thing that we're going to try and do uh, over on onto Facebook uh, and also YouTube uh, to do little clips just to tidy up a few things. Um, some of your feedback from previous episodes has been just wanting us to clarify a few bits we're going to be able to get our guests back on to do those sorts of pieces Uh, patch up jobs shall we say or to re-clarify certain topics that were covered years gone by um as you heard on the episode, I'd really value your, your time if you would give us some feedback on what goes on in your emergency departments, minor injury units or sports fields, or what happens in your physio departments with the majority of your colleagues. What is going on on the clinical frontline with regards to acute ankle injuries or, or uh, ankle instabilities? Um, it's really important that we've been doing this quite a while now so episode 40 it's really important that we sort of understand how ha- is the tide turning is there a is there a sensible middle ground being the majority or is it still uh, that there's a there's a lot of dismissive attitudes or over cautious attitudes even that are going on uh, in departments particularly emergency departments or physio departments across the world so we, we really want to hear from you so please if you could take the time to give us some feedback on that and especially if you have any audit data that you can share with us that we we can then share uh, far and wide, then we'd really appreciate that. Bit of a final update on the newsletter. We're gonna get back on top of these things, but a lot of the extras that we'd normally give out on our newsletter, if you signed up on the Choose Health website, you might have seen were a bit quieter or it's a bit more sluggish, in the Google Drive page. The reason is that a lot of that stuff goes through onto, onto Patreon, and, and we focus our attention on extra content onto our patrons, so you've got a couple of options. You can either be, be patient, and we will be sorting that out soon. Your other option is you throw us a couple of quid on a monthly basis and, and jump on Patreon we would also massively appreciate that but also we seem to be we seem to be entertaining our patrons fairly well they seem fairly a happy bunch so we must be doing something right so please do consider joining us there and throwing us a few quid so we can keep making our content as, we, as we're as we doing and, and spreading our word as widely as we can to try and win what we consider the battle of ideas so that's enough from me I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll be seeing you next month for more Physio Matters uh, Um, And also then, as we've said, we are upping our content on all angles, uh, especially on Facebook and Twitter. So please do follow us at TPM Podcast, at Choose underscore Health and the Physio Matters Podcast and the Physio Matters Student Focus Group on Facebook. So for now, you've been listening to the Physio Matters Podcast, discussing Physio Matters because physio matters. Bye for now.